And we've been discussing the theme of hope this, uh, this month, actually. Uh, and uh, this, this passage here that we're going to look at, I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we're reading Paul's letter here to this church. Interesting uh, uh, take on that, but we're going to read to the verses first of all, and then we'll get into the message. Uh, if you're able to, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We're just going to read a few verses. If you follow me in Colossians 1, verse starting in 23, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Colossians 1, starting in verse 23. The Bible says, If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister, according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which had been hid from the ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving accordingly to his working, which worketh in me mightily." As I've been studying through this passage, it's a, it's a beautiful passage. Uh, I love reading Paul's epistles just in general. But as we come here to the book of Colossians, I'm reading through these verses. And uh, a lot of this is actually Paul's, uh, in a sense, his resume, if you will, or giving his credentials to the church of Colossae. But I have to ask this question as we begin here. What is your motivation? Do you have a motivation for certain things, whether it be at your workplace or maybe on a project or... Uh, or even just life in general, what is your motivation to keep going? Uh, I think sometimes we are faced with that in a sense of reality check or a life check, if you will, in our lives. What is really our motivation to keep us going? Why do we do what we do? Why do you work the way you work? Why do you live the way you live? Why do you uh, have conversations that we have conversations? Just every aspect of life. But even when it comes to ministry, and I have to ask myself this question even as a pastor and as a preacher of the gospel, what is my motivation even in doing that? And so I think this is kind of where we find Paul's uh, answer is really interesting and in how we do that. So that's kind of the question to begin with. What is your motivation? Uh, a lot, I think a lot of people, uh, what they do, I think I, I kind of just Googled this briefly. If you put on, you know, what's your motivation? A lot of it has to do with doing like, you know, what are you trying to achieve? What's your goals in life? You know, you want to get a, uh, um, I know, a, a better type of job, for example, or you want to have this type of house, or, or maybe go on an exotic vacation every year. You know, who's on the, who would like to go to Fiji this year? Why not? You know, it's like that. So, but anyways, nonetheless, what, what drives you to these things? And I think so, so many times our motivation is stride in doing and even how we are doing it per se, but it's all on the what of our motivation. 
is what it is. But I, we're going to kind of come to Paul's definition. And in order to understand that, we need to kind of look at why Paul even wrote this letter to the Colossians. Uh, we're just looking at a few verses today, but if you look at the whole b- book of Colossians, by the way, if you read it, it will probably take you, I don't know, not even an hour to read through the whole thing. Uh, if you do it st- studiously, maybe just a few minutes, really. But it's a powerful book. But Paul wrote this book from prison. As he was, he was in prison, and he wrote it to the church of Colossae, which is a church that he did not plant. It's also a church he did not meet. He never met them before. Uh, there was other people, Tychicus, for example, and then actually later on we find in the Colossians, this letter that was given, it was actually given from Paul to Tychicus, who was the leader there, and also to a man by the name of Onesimus. Does anyone know who Onesimus was? That's right. No. <laughs> Who is Onesimus? He was the slave, the servant of another man. Actually, we have a book of the Bible named after him. His name was Philemon. Okay? Fascinating story, but basically Onesimus was a runaway slave. Ended up meeting Paul there in Rome, we believe, or somewhere in that area anyways. And Paul was able to lead him to the Lord, disciple him, and then he sends him back. And he sends them back, and I'm kind of getting ahead of the story here in a little bit in the passage, but basically he sends Onesimus back to Philemon and to the church at Colossae, saying, accept him as basically one of your own, as your equal, as your brother, per se. And that's an interesting. He left Philemon's house, he left Colossae a slave, and he returns back a brother in Christ. That is a transformation, and Paul kind of deals with that issue a little bit here in this passage of how that happens. But this is kind of what he's doing. So Paul is writing to this church. He didn't plan and a church he never met. And so problems came along that way. One of the reasons that Paul was writing this letter was there were false teachers that were creeping into that church in Colossae who were trying to discredit Paul, uh, saying, hey, would you really? Okay, Paul is a political prisoner. He's in Rome. Why would you trust anything that this prisoner, he's in jail. Why would you trust a felon? You know, from what they wrote, they're trying to discredit him. But Paul is basically, he's, what he's doing is he's sharing the gospel and do that. So these false teachers, they were doing more than just discrediting Paul. They were trying to turn people away from the gospel or they were adding to the gospel. And just, it was just getting very confusing in their, their efforts. So Paul, what he's doing here, especially in the first chapter in these verses, um, He's giving more or less his credentials, his resume, if you will, uh, presenting himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. And in Colossians chapter 1, he presents Jesus Christ as king over all creation. I think this is important to look at. Look with me really quickly. Colossians 1 verse, uh, let's start in verse 15. It says here, talking about Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of every creature, for by him all things are, are, are created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether it be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things consist. So he's presenting Jesus Christ as king over creation. Make a long story. Jesus is God. He is the creator of God. We see his power this way. But Jesus is king over creation. But also, Paul is presenting Jesus over the, as king over the new creation as well. Look with me now in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and all things that he might have the preeminence. For please the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. So, talking about the church, these are born-again believers. 
This is the body of Christ. So Jesus is not only king over creation, he's king over the new creation as well. I don't know about you, but that's powerful. This is who I serve. This is what Paul is saying. This is who I serve. And now he's coming in, starting in verse 23, he's presenting to the Colossians why he does what he does. He presents in a nutshell his motivation. So what motivated Paul? And here's the idea. It wasn't so much what Paul was doing. We know he had three missionary journeys, for example. He went and planted churches. He went and did evangelism. He did all these things. He went back and checked, discipled, ordained elders in every city. He tried to do as best as he can in that. And by the way, the fruit of his work still goes on today. Praise God for that. Okay? So here's the question. It wasn't, though, what motivated Paul. It wasn't what he was doing, but rather it was who he was serving. It was Jesus, the hope of glory. And that's what we're going to be talking about today and found in verse 27, talking about Christ in you, the hope of glory. And this is really what drives Paul's motivation to serve and should drive us together as well. This is our motivation to be ministers of the gospel. Now, how many here are, are in Christian service today? How many here? Raise your hand if you are, if, if you are serving in Christian service today. Every hand should go up. If you're a child of God, you, are, you belong in the service of the king. There's no such thing. I talked to someone this week. It was a kind of a funny conversation we had, but we were talking about people who, who retire from ministry, but you never retire from being a Christian. Okay? You never retire from that. You are salt and light no matter where you go. That's a blessing, okay? Um, even think, well, you know, I, when we, usually when we think of ministry, we think of an actual job, an actual occasion, a pastor, a missionary, a Sunday school teacher. We think of a title. Folks, it's more than that. It's a heart thing. It's basically who God has equipped us to be, and that is to be servants of him. Do whatever he does wherever he sends us. And with that in mind, by the way, there is no such thing as a secular job for a Christian. Listen to that. There's no such thing as a secular job for a Christian. Wherever you go, you are salt and light for the glory of God. In our Western mindset, we separate our spiritual life from the physical life. You know what? The Bible doesn't talk about that. It's together. It motivates us together. It's one and the same. This is our motivation. It's, and we're going to get to it. It's not so much what we do. It's who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us. This is what I want us to focus on this day, talking about the hope of glory. So let's first of all talk about the minister of hope. Okay? So Paul here says, look back in verse 23 again. Paul says, If you continue in the faith, ground and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under the sun, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. So Paul's introducing himself now. Verse 24, Paul, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Verse 25, whereof I made a minister every according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. So in these two verses we find here who Paul is. He is really the minister of the hope of glory. And what is involved in his ministry? What is he doing and specifically as he's writing to the Colossians, what is he what is he doing for them? Okay? Even though he's never planted that church, even though he never has met them other than Tychicus and Onesimus, what is he actually doing for them? The first thing he does is he is suffering for them. Well, first of all, he's suffering for Christ. He says, verse 24 again, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. He is suffering for Christ. Uh, he's suffering for the church, but fill up with that, which is suffering, actually in verse, later on 24, uh, he's talking about the afflictions of Christ in my body for his body's sake, which is the church. So Christ, Jesus, excuse me, 
Paul here is suffering for Christ. And what this suffering involves here is basically a service. This is his part of his service. Now, we know that the Apostle Paul suffered much in his, in his earthly ministry while he was here, okay? We read of, for example, in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, there is a whole list of things that had been going on in, in Paul's ministry. Actually, let's turn there. Hold your place in Colossians. Look with me over in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11. This, this does bear looking at because I want us to see exactly what Paul went through in his, in his ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and verse 20, starting in verse 23, Paul lists out his sufferings. Okay, He says in verse 23, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, stripes above measure. In prisons more frequent, in deaths off. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once I was stoned. That was by rocks, by the way. Okay? All right? Once I was stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck. Some of you got it. <laughs> thrice I suffered, suffered shipwreck. At night and the day have I been in the deep. Journeys often, perils of waters, robbers, perils of my own countrymen, perils by the heathen, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren, weariness, painfulness, watchings often, hunger and thirst, fastings often, cold and nakedness. I don't know about you, take a deep breath as a man. That's a lot that Paul went through. And indeed, he did suffer that. You read through the book of Acts. Um, after Paul's conversion, Acts chapter 9, and then later on, starting Acts 13, when he's called and sent out through the, pretty much the rest of the book, you're going to find out a lot of what Paul went through. It's a fascinating study, really, of what Paul went through. But there's more, okay? Verse 28 says this, Beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Okay? And so with that in mind, that's kind of what is happening here back in the book of Colossians. Paul is saying that I, in his sufferings that he's dealt with, his beatings, um, things that he's lacked of, things like that, his, the abuse that he's received from others, the naysayers, just everything that came involved with that, all this resulted in really to the care of the churches. And that's why Paul is saying here that he rejoices. He's actually rejoicing in suffering. And by the way, you think about it, that's impossible. How can someone rejoice in suffering? If you look through that, and if that was a part of your life, and maybe some days you feel that is, how can you rejoice in that? Because Paul knew what he was doing it for and who he was doing it for. Okay? He says this, that my sufferings for you and fill up that which is left or that is behind. The word behind there means lacking of the afflictions of Christ. So kind of what this is, when we think of the sufferings of Christ, we think usually of his death on the cross. And indeed, Christ suffered tremendously on the cross for our sins and for our atonement. But the sufferings that we're talking about here is a different Greek word, a different idea. And this, this afflictions or these sufferings that he has here is really a type of like the daily pressures of life, the daily things that happen to him uh, over a course of time, over a course of life. Even Jesus, think of that. He said, I have nowhere to lay my head. I mean, there's things, times Jesus, he went without food. His disciples did that. You know, there's different things we have that. Jesus dealt with sufferings in his own life just generally. And that's kind of what Paul is talking about here. The sufferings that he's doing here, he says, I'm doing this really for the church. So, and when it says here that these, uh, these sufferings or these afflictions are behind, it means they're lacking, which means this, that the sufferings that, or the afflictions that he's enduring are not yet complete. So in this sense, Jesus still suffers in a way as he ministers through his people. You see, here's the idea. When 
and Paul understood this, that when we suffer or when we are persecuted, when we deal with pressures of being a Christian, this isn't talking about stubbing your toe and, you know, you're just walking with a limp the rest of the day. It's not talking about that type of suffering. This is suffering as comes from being a Christian. Okay? But when we suffer or are persecuted, Christ suffers with us. We bear the sufferings of Christ. How do we know that? Back in uh, Acts 9, when Paul was on the road to, to Damascus, and the, what was he doing there? He was going there to persecute the Christians, round them up, take them to jail, do whatever he wanted. He was there to persecute. And what happens when Jesus stops him in the road, on the road to Damascus, what does Jesus say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When he was trying to persecute those believers in Damascus, in effect, he was really persecuting Jesus himself. So here's the thing. When you go through suffering from the name of Jesus, someone, I mean, here in the United States, it's probably, maybe we deal with it easier. But there's some parts of the world to be a Christian is very, very difficult. It could mean a loss of a job. It could mean imprisonment. I mean, there's a lot of people we think of underground churches, for example, that, that deal with these things. But in your context, too, when you suffer for the name of Christ, to be honest with you, I have actually heard here in the United States, I have had friends that were basically not given a, a, a raise or a promotion because of simply that they were a believer in Jesus and how they lived out their testimony on the, on the job place. Now, you couldn't corner their boss in a corner and say that's why they're doing it, but we know what it was. Nonetheless, as we think about that, when people persecute you for the name of Christ, by the way, what does Jesus say? Blessed are you. When men shall revile you, persecute, say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake, right? And so when we see this here, Jesus Christ is the one who is really being persecuted. We're just simply his messenger, and that's how Paul looked at it. That's why he could rejoice in that. Remember the believers in Acts. When they were arrested and they were basically given a big slap on the wrist and said, never preach in the name of Jesus again, what did they do when they left, when they left uh, the, the, the palace there, wherever they were? They rejoiced in that they suffered for the afflictions of Christ. They rejoiced in that. You know, a lot of people were saying, man, these people are crazy. But if you only knew who Jesus was and the power that he gives us to serve him, what joy and what hope, the hope of the gospel that we have. I like what one commentator says this, talking about the afflictions of Christ. And here's the thing. That what this is, is, this was not an atonement. There are some people who believe that Paul's suffering was in a way of atoning sacrificially for this church, or any church for that matter. But here's the thing. The term afflictions of Christ is never associated with redemptive suffering of Jesus on the cross or atonement. Rather, it speaks of those ministerial sufferings which Paul bears because he represents Jesus Christ. Okay, uh, I will say this, that when it comes to even pastoral work, uh, those who do minister publicly for the gospel, there is, in a sense, of afflictions that are received um, that, in a sense, is, is bearing for the congregation, for the church itself. And that's kind of what Paul is saying here, that I'm persecuted for your sake, and not just for any reason, but for Christ to be magnified. And guess what? We're going to deal with this until the Lord returns. But you know what? The, that will be glorious because what motivates us in our ministry, even through persecution, it's knowing this, who we are in Christ. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. So with that in mind, how did Paul serve then? Verse 25 says, Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you and to fulfill the word of God. 
Paul here, we see three things how Paul served. First of all, Paul served in humility. He served as a minister. The word minister here, the Greek word diakonos is where the word, get the word deacon, but nonetheless, it simply means a servant. Kind of the idea, if you want to know where the rubber meets the road is, this idea of service, think of like the busboy at, uh, at your local restaurant. Okay, it's the low end of the totem pole. My first job, I worked for two years at Front Street Cafe in Brainerd, Minnesota. Okay, as I worked there, worked for Wayne Erickson and uh, and uh, I, was, I was that guy. I was that busboy. I was the dishwasher. I mean, you couldn't get any lower. Uh, you know, that's just how it was. But you know what? It was my first job. And by the way, I learned how to wash dishes very well to this day. You ask my wife, dishes have to be washed in a very precise way, right? <laughs> to this day, okay? It's just habit. So I thank, I thank God for that first experience. But that's kind of what Paul is like here. He's saying that I am a minister being, I'm that busboy. I'm simply a servant of the Lord. He's not above anyone. He's, if anything else, he is the lowest on the totem pole. Isn't that exactly how Jesus Christ, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many? That's how Paul envisioned his own life in ministry. Okay, so he served in humility as a, as a minister, as a busboy, if you will. He also served as a steward. Uh, according to the word dispensation here, kind of means stewardship. And he does this basically managing what God has given, the ministry God has given him. And then as God has appointed him, the word fulfilled there. So, and I kind of summing that verse up, Paul served in humility as a steward, as God has appointed him for that ministry. That's one way at least to look at that. I, I like this. When we think about ministry, Paul was not, he calls himself often a servant, a doulos, a slave in how he viewed himself as a busboy, if you will. I like what Charles Spurgeon said, if God has called you to be a servant, don't stoop to be a king. If you're trying to get up the ladder and trying to be seen of men at your workplace or wherever it go, you know what, you're, you're doing it with the wrong intent. Jesus Christ came to be exactly, if God has called you to be a servant, don't stoop to be a king. God honors that. God honors humility. And with that comes faithfulness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, it is required among stewards that a man be found what? Faithful. You simply do what God has asked you to do and leave the results to God. And that's how he led his ministry. That's exactly what he did. So here's the idea. Is ministry worth it? Serving people, serving churches. Christ, the hopes of, of glory, makes the ministry worth it by knowing who we are in Christ. So we find out the minister of the hope of the gospel now, or the hope of glory, but now we look at the mystery of the hope of glory. Look with me, verse 26 and 27. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to the saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this, this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So first of all, we see the word mystery actually a couple times there in those verses. And the word mystery basically means it's something a hidden truth or secret, and then something that has been revealed. So that's the idea. So a mystery, in, in our today, if you mention the word mystery, I'm going to present you a mystery. Usually we think of something uh, secretive, sinister even in back, you know, or you think of a mystery movie, something like that. But biblically speaking, a mystery is simply something that was concealed or, or hidden for a time to be revealed at a proper time. And that's kind of the idea that we have here as well. Uh, there are different types of, I think, I like this term. Someone, another commentator said this, a mystery is really a sacred secret. A sacred secret 
something to be hidden, that's hidden to be revealed. Examples of mystery. There's many types of mysteries that are mentioned in the Bible. Uh, there is the mystery of godliness that's found in First Timothy 3.16. Uh, it's talking about the incarnation of God. God was manifested the flesh. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. That's the mystery, okay? Things that were not seen or at least seen clearly in the Old Testament are now visibly seen. They're now revealed anew. Another mystery that's been mentioned is the mystery of the blindness of Israel, Romans chapter 11, uh, the partial blindness that Israel has uh, to the Messiah. There's also the mystery of iniquity or lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 7, talking about really the end times. We also have the mystery of the rapture in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. Okay. By the way, that verse is the theme verse of our nursery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, right? There you go. You'll get that later. Okay, nonetheless, there's different ministries. But also another mystery is the mystery of the church. That's something that, again, the Old Testament prophets did not see, but has been revealed in the New Testament. But how does the church look like? And that's what Paul is getting to now here in these verses. By the way, he mentions this a lot more in detail in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3. But what does the church look like? Remember this, that God's plan, he begin, begins with Abraham. I will bless them that bless thee, curse them that curse thee. And through you, Abraham, shall all families of the world be blessed. Through the Jewish people, God has blessed the world. And so for someone to come to know God in a way, they had to become, in a sense, Jewish. Uh, they had to adopt that. But now in the New Testament, it's been expanded in a great way. And by the way, that was prophesied that that would happen. But exactly what it would look like, it was still kind of, vague until you get to the New Testament. And how do we see that develop? We see here, this is the glorious part of it, that whereas God was working with Israel, guess what? Gentiles are also now included in God's plan. I don't know about you, if you're here as a Gentile, you should say amen to that. <laughs> in other words, you, and Paul later goes on, even in chapter 2, you don't have to become Jewish in order to be saved. All right, You don't have to go through all the law and things like that in order to be right with God. And there were some people in the Church of Colossae that were saying that. And Paul is addressing those, those issues. By the way, if you want to know exactly the layout of how that all developed, go to Acts chapter 15. And what you're going to see, it's like, okay, Gentiles are getting saved. They're growing. What is this going to look? Remember the first church, Acts 2, was what? It was all Jewish. Okay? It was all Jewish. And now Gentiles, Cornelius and others coming in. And now it's blossoming, it's growing as Paul is traveling and doing his missionary journey. What are we going to do with these Gentiles now? What, how should they respond to the laws of Moses? That was the Bible they had at that time, okay? How do they respond to that? And Acts chapter 15 deals with that. And so as we look at this now, the Gentiles are included in God's plan. In, in Ephesians chapter 2, and I think this is in, uh, important, Actually, let me read this verse again, Colossians 1.26. Even the mystery hath been hid from the ages and generations, now made manifest to the saints. Verse 27. For whom God would make known was the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In other words, the Gentiles, God is now working among the Gentiles. In other words, we can have that personal relationship with the Jewish Messiah. That's what it's about, okay? In Ephesians chapter 2, it, come, go with me over there, because it's worth looking at, okay? Ephesians 2, and we're going to see what Paul's design, or Paul mentions here as far as God's plan. Look at me, Ephesians 2, beginning verse 11. It says here, Wherefore, remember that being in, t in past, uh, 
or time past, Gentiles in the flesh were called the uncircumcision by that which the circumcision of the flesh made by hands. That at that time you were without Christ. So the Gentiles were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope. That's how Gentiles were. And without God in the world. But, I love that, but now in Christ Jesus, who are sometimes far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ, where he is our peace, who has made us both one and have broken down the middle wall of partition between us. I absolutely love that verse. I, I think maybe we'll do a study, maybe uh, I'd like to introduce on the temple of Jerusalem, and you'll see exactly where those partitions were. It basically said, if you're up on the temple mount, which by the way, today, if we go to Israel, I'll, I'll, if I can, I'll take you up on the temple mount. But there are actually, archaeologists have found, basically signs that said in Greek, that if you are not Jewish, if you pass this line, you do it on the risk of your own head, on your own blood, uh, is on your hands. In other words, there was a dividing line. Gentiles could not go past a certain point. But here we have, through Christ and through his shed blood, we now have access where only Jewish people had that access before. That's, that's really amazing. In verse uh, 15 of this, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law and the commandments contained the ordinances, to make in himself twain one new man, so making peace. This is amazing. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body in the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And so this is talking about Jews and Gentiles, one in Messiah. This is the idea that we have here together. And now, going back to Colossians 1, he's saying that this is the mystery of the Gentiles. That, again, hidden in the old, revealed in the new. As we see here more, more vividly, that it's God's plan that the Gentiles become one in Messiah as well. I think this is absolutely amazing. So the Gentiles are included in God's plan. I was uh, actually meeting with someone this week. Uh, he's, a, he's a Jewish believer. And he has a heart and desire to see Jews and Gentiles serving together in the church. Now, we sometimes don't take that for granted, but in, in Paul's day, that was a radical change. That was a very big uh, change for them. And so this is very important. That is God's plan for the Jews and Gentiles to be one in Messiah. That's his plan. By the way, that's why we always say, we look, we look at Romans 1.16, the gospel is given to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and praise God also to the Gentiles, to the Greeks. We should be, thank God for that. So with that in mind, what was, what was kind of the big plan of this? Paul here was a servant and really suffered for the Gentiles. Think about that. Paul, in his sufferings, it'd be one thing if he suffered for his own people, which he did for the Jewish people, but he suffered a lot for Gentiles, for the Gentile believers, for these uh, Colossians, the Gentile churches. Think about this. This is why so many of the Jewish leaders hated him so much, because he was taking the, the, what God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even through the Messiah, and now he's preaching this to Gentiles? This is crazy. That's how they thought. And that's why the Jewish leaders hated him so much. Remember, it's just really amazing for that. So with, with that in mind, Gentiles, through the gospel, are welcomed in the family of God. In other words, here's the thing. They're, everyone flies first class on the way to heaven in God's plan. That's the idea. How does that apply to us in the church? You know, like I said, we, it's hard for us to really picture this. And so something that I've been challenged with as well as I read this is this. 
when we think of our brothers and sisters in Christ, when someone comes in, maybe a little different, things like that, but understand this, don't treat each other as second-class Christians. That's what it amounts to. Don't think of each other or another person as a second-class Christian. Unfortunately, I see that too many times in churches. That could be for a variety of factors. Maybe this is just the way we've always done it. Someone comes in new, it's like, well, they never feel fully accepted. Here's, here's the bottom line, folks. We're part of the family of God. As we come here together, don't treat other people as second-class citizens of heaven. Okay? Like I said, we all get to fly, fly first class to heaven. I think that's absolutely amazing. If you want to go and coach, that's your own choice, but hey, it's, everyone goes. <laughs> Nonetheless. So what's our hope? It's Christ. Christ in you. So this is the amazing thing. This is the miracle that is taking place here at the end of verse 27. What is this mystery? What is this sacred secret? It's, it's among the Gentiles. One thing to say about the Jews, but here it is. It's the Christ. It's Messiah. It's Jesus in you, the hope of glory. So what is this about? First of all, we see here that Christ is our hope. Christ is our hope. 1 Timothy 1.1 says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. Jesus Christ is our hope. And this hope here is not just a wishful thinking, oh, I hope it doesn't snow today, but it probably will. Okay, you know, it's not that. I hope the Vikings win today, but they probably won't. It's not that type of wishful thinking, folks. What is this? Hope is this expectancy, a certainty that is coming. It's almost like this. Like, it's like when I remember when my wife and I, we've been married almost 21 years now, when we were getting ready for that wedding day, I was, I was hoping for that day. Not as I would, oh man, I just hope we get married. You know, hopefully it'll happen. Hopefully she'll say I do. It wasn't that. If you went into your wedding that way, shame on you, okay? <laughs> but when I went into our wedding day, I was excited because it was an expectancy it was a certainty that we have it on our account. This is going to happen. Um, and even more so when you have children. You know that, you know, as the baby grows, okay, in a few more months, you got nine months, there's, ex- there's a growing expectancy, a growing hope that it's going to come to pass. Okay? And so that's what our hope is with Christ as well. This is not just a wishful thing. Man, I hope Jesus is with me today. No, this is an expectancy that grows and grows and grows as we know him more and love him more and serve him more until he comes in glory. And when that happens, we get to see fulfilled. This is just a taste of what we will experience when we get to heaven. I can't wait. I'm flying first class for sure in that case, okay? So this is important, folks, okay? So here's the thing. Our hope, what is our hope then? Our hope with that in mind is not our devotion and it's not our good works. It's not our performance for God or even for the church. That's the thing. A lot of times we think of our hope is this. Man, we got to do more for God. We got to tell more people about Jesus. We got to teach more classes. We got to memorize more verses. We got to sing more songs. We got to give more offerings. By the way, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay? We should all be about the Father's business. But if that is simply our hope is doing these things... That's our devotion or our performance for God. Here's the deal. Our hope is found in not what we do, it's in who we do it for. Our hope is in Christ. And here's the key. It's indwelling us through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we can rest in Him. There are so many frustrated Christians who they basically don't think, man, I'm just not doing enough for God and God doesn't like it. And they live in fear. They live in fear of that. You know what? We should definitely be about the Father's business doing these things. 
But it should come from our relationship with him that grows from that. You know, I don't wash the dishes at our home just to make sure Mandy's not upset with me. A lot of Christians, that's how they do it. Man, I better go and pass out a track so God's not upset with me. You live in fear. We do it because why? I wash the dishes in my home because what? I love her. You, all right? I love her. I love our family. You care for your children, your grandchildren, because why? Not because you don't want them to be upset at you. I hope that's not the case. You do it because you love them. And when we serve the Lord, we do it because of our relationship with him. This is how we do it. But understand this, our hope is found in Jesus Christ. We can rest in him. Talking about the indwelling Christ, when we are born again, this happens at salvation. The moment we are saved, Christ has given us his Holy Spirit to be with us, that he dwells in us. John chapter 14 deals extensively with that. And what is the result? What does this look like? What does the Christ, the hope of glory, look like? How does it look like in this body that we have here today? Here's the result, or one result of seeing Christ in you, the hope of glory, is this. The church is Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Christ in you, Christ in us, the hope of glory. When we see that together, it makes a difference. I like what H.B. Charles said on this. In the Gospels, Jesus called would-be disciples to follow him. But the actual relationship between Christ and his followers is greater and deeper and higher than that. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here's the point. No other religion speaks of the relationship between its leader and its adherents that way. It's not Mohammed in you, the hope of glory. It's not Buddha in you, the hope of glory. It really isn't. It's really Christ in you, the hope of glory. That makes the difference. This is the spiritual union between Christ and the church. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. The spiritual union with Christ is what binds us together as the church. The indwelling presence of the life-giver king resides within each of us and has made us one in Christ. It's who we are. So, in looking at that, now we turn last two verses and we'll kind of sum this up. So, who is Christ the hope of glory? This is verse 28, whom we preach. We preach Christ. Warning every man and teaching every man all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving accordingly to the working which worketh in me mightily. As we see here in verse 28, it's interesting. This is what Paul sets out to do. Now that he, we know his motivation, this is how he does it. What does he do? He preaches Christ, first of all. Okay, This is the work of the proclamation of the gospel. This is the five aspects of this working that Paul is doing. First of all, we see that Christ is the center of the message. So in looking at that, when we see he's preaching Christ, he's preaching the gospel, the gospel is not so much what, it's who. The gospel is Jesus Christ. The good news is the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, and what he had done for us, but it's who he is. Here's the idea. As we proclaim the gospel, and a lot of churches, and you probably have heard this, our goal is to what? To know Christ and to make him known. That's the proclamation that Paul is talking about here. And there's five, there's more aspects to this. Number one is warning or admonishing every man, correcting wrong beliefs and practice. So there we have. So it says here, warning every man. This is talking about admonishing. In other words, including the Colossians, there were some beliefs that were starting to go astray, practices that were different, that weren't right. And Paul here is doing that. Then he's doing teaching uh, every man in all wisdom. This is teaching or guiding into correct beliefs and practices. Warning to stay away from bad practices, now teaching to do the good practices. And then now he is to, in the end of verse 28, present every man perfect in 
Christ Jesus. The way it mentions here perfect is actually the word complete in Christ, complete in, in the Lord. And so here's the thing. This, what this is doing here, this is really the model of discipleship. If you want to know what discipleship looks like, this is found here in verse 28. We proclaim the gospel, we warn or admonish, we teach, and then the goal is that, that we find someone complete in Christ. That is, that's the model of discipleship right here. And so in doing that, a lot of people, they talk about doing so much for the Lord. They want to do this. They want to do this program. They want to have this great number of people, things like that. But here's the thing, and this is what I care for Victory Baptist Church about as your pastor, is this. I, I honestly think this, that I want to focus here on the depth of this ministry, how deep we go in knowing Christ. And when we do that, God will take care of the breadth of this ministry. When we care about the depth of this ministry, knowing Christ and making him known, God will take care of the breadth of this ministry. I've seen so many churches and other ministries that do the opposite. They want to go gangbusters and they want to reach everywhere. You know what? We have this corner here in Maple Grove and we're going to know Christ and we're going to make him known. God will take care of the breadth of the ministry. I'm confident of that. So with that, how should we then do it? Paul says at the end, verse 28, Whereas I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. So striving according to his power. That's the idea. The power that we have here, serving here, requires strength. Serving requires strength that only the Lord can provide. How do we get this power? A lot of people, a lot of Christians try to do it in their own strength. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to what? The power of that worketh in us. That's not your power. That's not my power working in you. I can't do much to help you. But the Lord can through His Spirit. So here's one thing, that, kind of a fallout when people do ministry, is a lot of people suffer with burnout. I've met several Christians, I've met several believers who express, I just can't do this anymore, Pastor. I, I just feel burnt out. And uh, there's a lot of exhaustion that comes in life, period. Running families, running a business, just trying to care for the neighbor, whatever it may be. But here's the thing. Here's a word of caution. A lot of people burn out because simply they are relying on their own strength instead of God's strength. A lot of people burn out because they're relying on their own strength instead of God's strength. I've been there myself, folks. There's times in our ministry I say, man, I just want to walk away. But praise God, he sustained me. Because why? Our burnout, I'll be honest with you, what is burnout really? It's really the outcome of pride when you think about it. We're running on fumes. A lot of times I want you to really look and says, why are you running on fumes? Why are you so burnt out? A lot of it is because of pride, because we're trying to do it. We're trying to shore up and man up and push through. There's some days where we got to do that, I mean, obviously. But when that is our continual focus, if that is our motivation to simply push through another day, to push through this issue, to push through this, this project at work, whatever it may be, okay, our motivation should be Jesus Christ in you, the hope of glory, because who he is. So what's your motivation? Christ's presence in us is the hope of glory. And the truth is full of his glorious riches. Once we were dead in our sins, in darkened spirits, and God has made us like God has quickened us by his spirit, Ephesians 2.1. It's Christ in our hearts. And we know that, obviously, there's life beyond this earth in his existence, a life that will be glorious above all imagination. So, Here's the thing, as we live and as we minister for the Lord, as you serve the Lord, each and every one of you serve the Lord, okay? Why? Because Christ is in you, if you're as a child of God. 
As you live for the Lord and serve him, you must do it in his power and his strength and his might. So here's the point of this. Christ in you, the hope of glory, makes the ministry worth it. That's why Paul could do it, writing to a church he never planted, a people he never met, and he could say, guess what, I'm suffering for you and I love you and I want you to know that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Let's continue pressing on in his strength that he gives us. Praise God for that and that precious promise. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's have a word of prayer.